Welcome to this Emultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Emultiple Sclerosis Review. Our guests today are from the Cleveland Clinic, where Dr. Daniel Antoneda is a staff neurologist, and Drs. Jenny Fang and Gabrielle Macaron are neurologists and current neuroimmunology fellows. And we're here to discuss the clinical challenges of individualizing therapy for patients with MS. Emultiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Celgene Corporation. Learning objectives for this audio program include explain stratifying patients based on positive and negative predictors as a key part of individualizing therapy, and describe challenges in the development of new MS therapies, particularly for progressive MS. Dr. Gabrielle Macaron has disclosed that she has served on a scientific advisory board for Genentech. She previously received fellowship funding from Biogen Incorporated and currently receives fellowship funding through the National MS Society. Dr. Jenny Fang has disclosed that she has served on a scientific advisory board for Sanofi Genzyme. She currently receives fellowship funding through the National MS Society. Dr. Daniel Antoneda has disclosed that he has served as a principal investigator and received research funding from Genentech Incorporated, Novartis AG, and Genzyme Corporation, and that he has received consulting fees from Novartis AG, Biogen IDEC, and Genentech Incorporated. All of our guests have indicated that they will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's presentation. Dr. Macaron, Dr. Antoneda, Dr. Fang, thank you all for joining us today. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Bob, for having us. I'm very happy to join in this CME activity. In your recent newsletter issue, doctors, you analyzed the current publications describing the new and emerging treatment options that may expand clinicians' ability to individualize MS therapy. I'd like to follow up on that today by discussing how that information can be applied to clinical practice. So start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Fang, with a patient scenario. So here we have a typical case of a 39-year-old Caucasian female who has previously been diagnosed with transverse myelitis at age of 29 and subsequently diagnosed with MS after she had a relapses in the past 10 years, mostly in the pyramidal system. And with some of them, she did have incomplete recovery. So the previous relapses, they occurred despite her being on multiple disease-modifying therapies, including interferon beta and then glutaramol acetate. Her last relapse was recent, four months ago, after which she again had incomplete recovery and required the use of cane. Prior to that, she was fully ambulatory independently. She is currently on dimethylfumarate with poor tolerance and poor compliance because of the severe GI side effects and the flushing that happens every time she takes the medication. Her EDSS currently is 6.0, and her clinical exam today shows worsening of her existing right-sided weakness. In addition to the interval development of left leg coordination difficulties, she on imaging has lesions C2 to C3 level and also the C5 to C6 level in the cervical spinal cord. And in addition to that, she has moderate T2 lesion burden supratentorially and in the two new enhancing brain lesions on post-contrast T1 scan. She is JC virus positive with an index of 3.84. And also, it's worthwhile to mention that she works as a school board member, has a very busy schedule that requires frequent traveling, and she's had poor compliance in the past with injectables as well because she couldn't remember to bring her medication with her. Her prognosis, Dr. Macaron, which aspects of her history might be indicators of a poor prognosis? So it is clear here that this patient is in an advanced stage of her MS with persistent disease activity. She has a very long-standing history of suboptimally controlled disease. 
So I think she has many negative predictors of disability progression, including more severe disability, a history of relapses with incomplete recovery after each one, and persistent relapses while on disease-modifying therapy. She also used a number of disease-modifying therapies in the past and has failed them. She also has gait impairment, which is also a negative predictor. So based on the predictive models that were described in the paper by Kalinsink and Al, this patient would experience more disability progression and relapses on interferons compared to natalizumab over the next four years. So the predictive model indicates that she's likely to experience more disability, continued progression, and more relapses. How does that information translate into treatment considerations? Dr. Feng? Sure. So based on all the negative predictive factors that Dr. Macaron has mentioned, this patient would definitely benefit from a higher efficacy treatment. So although she's currently on dimethylfumarate, and that may be effective in this case where she's had side effects causing her to be non-adherent to the currently prescribed regimen, um, natalizumab is a high-efficacy treatment that could be considered, but it's contraindicated in this patient's case because of her JC virus positivity and the subsequent risk for PML. So therefore, an anti-CD20 agent such as ocrelizumab or rituximab would be an appropriate alternative in this case in terms of mitigating the disability progression risk, minimizing relapse frequency, and risk of secondary progression conversion. We should also take the mode of administration and the pharmacokinetics of these disease-modifying therapies into consideration. So as I've mentioned earlier, this patient's a frequent traveler, very busy schedule, hard to keep up with daily medication dose. Ocrelizumab or Texamab, they only require two annual infusions, which would work well compared to some of the other medications. Dr. Antoneda, wrap up this case for us, if you would, please. So wrapping up, I would probably just remind our audience that even in patients who have quite advanced disease, and even if they've had MS for many years, if we do find evidence of disease activity, and if we do find those poor prognostic factors, we have to recognize that there probably still is some inflammation there to target, and using potent therapies that target inflammation effectively are probably worth using. This is something that we constantly have to check for and something that we have to keep in the back of our mind when we see patients. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with our guests from the Cleveland Clinic in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine e-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with multiple sclerosis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for e-multiple sclerosis review is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information about e-multiple sclerosis review, please go to our website, emsreview.org. And one more thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. We've been speaking with our guests from the Cleveland Clinic, Drs. Gabrielle Macaron, Daniel Antoneda, and Jenny Fang, about the clinical challenges of individualizing therapy for patients with MS. So let's continue in that clinical vein, if you would please, Dr. Macaron. 
with another patient scenario. We have here a 59-year-old woman who presents to discuss the management of her MS. So in the past, she had unilateral optic neuritis at the age of 29 and uh, developed symptoms suggestive of a sensory myelitis around the age of 33. She was started on interferon beta-1A at that time and is still currently taking this medication. She has had approximately one relapse every two to three years since. And for the past five years, she did not really experience clear-cut episodes suggestive of a relapse. However, she has noticed a very slow worsening of her gait with left leg stiffness and weakness. For the past year, she has been using a cane outside of her house. And without the cane, she's unable to walk longer distances and she is at risk of falling. She notices that the longer she walks, the weaker her left leg feels. And she also complains of several other symptoms like numbness in both legs, intermittent painful cramps in the left calf, and some urinary urgency, also associated with some obstructive symptoms like difficulties emptying her bladder. She had two episodes of uncomplicated cystitis in the past year that were both successfully treated with oral antibiotics. Now, her most recent MRI shows stable, moderate lesion loads, and was compared to an MRI that was done two years ago, there are no enhancing lesions. She also has moderate brain atrophy, maybe a little bit more than what is expected for her age. Her clinical examination, when we saw her in the clinic, showed moderate weakness in the hip flexors, hamstrings, and ankle dorsiflexors on the left. She also had increased tone at the ankle and decreased vibration sense in both legs. She also had a spastic and paretic gait. So the patient thinks that her current disease-modifying therapy is not really helping her, and she's interested in stopping it. She heard that a new medication has been recently approved for progressive MS, and she was wondering if she would benefit from it. She's on interferon, she doesn't feel it's working, her disability is worsening, and she's asking you to change her medication. Dr. Fang, how would you address her request? So this is a classical scenario that we encounter every day in clinical practice. The disease course appears to be slowly progressing, at least over the past five years or so, based on her clinical history. And a lot of times, the transition between relapsing remitting and secondary progressive MS does not occur at a clear-cut point. And many patients may still have some sort of inflammatory activity in the early phases of their progressive course, and they may have progression during their earlier relapse and remitting course. So the cut is not completely clear. And interference, they reduce the risk of relapses, but they do not delay the onset or the progression of disability. So relapses, they may result in disability accumulation, but they're usually observed in younger patients who are earlier in their disease course. And in this patient's case, there's no evidence of clinical disease activity based on her history or radiological activity based on her recent MRI. So her request to discontinue her injectable therapy is therefore supported. What does the literature say, Dr. Macaron? Our patient is older and she has had MS for the past 30 years, which is a very long time. Unfortunately, no trials have studied the benefit of discontinuing disease-modifying therapies in older patients with very long-standing MS, especially those without clinical or radiological disease activity. There is one ongoing study called DISCO-MS that aims at evaluating the safety of stopping MS medications in this population and which would hopefully answer this question. But the AN guidelines advise discontinuing DMTs in older patients with secondary progressive MS who have been, you know, clinically and radiologically stable for at least two years, and specifically those who are non-ambulatory. Dr. Antoneda, anything to add? 
Yeah, so in this case, which is almost the opposite of the prior case, where the patient doesn't have clear evidence of disease activity and actually has a slow progressive course, I think a clear discussion has to be had regarding the hypothetical risk of recurrence of disease activity once one were to stop the disease-modifying therapy. In this case, I would say that typically this is a patient that we would probably have this discussion and based on our discussion, probably opt to stop the medication based on her demographics, based on her disease characteristics, her age, and also the fact that she really hasn't shown much in terms of inflammatory disease activity. And sometimes patients take away the message that because we're not giving them therapy, perhaps we're not treating their disease. But I think that what we try to do in patients like this is refocus where we put our attention. So rather than thinking about the disease-modifying therapies and targeting inflammation, probably here we should focus on everything else that we can do, including symptomatic management. So the idea of individualizing therapy to provide best care, in some cases that might actually be discontinuing disease-modifying therapies. I think in these cases one has to recenter the discussion around how can we make your quality of life better and not only think about disease-modifying medications to treat inflammation. Good point, doctor. I want to shift focus to something else this patient said, that she heard about a new medication. As I think every clinician has experienced, patients, particularly those with progressive MS, often hear about new DMTs and emergent therapies, and they ask their doctors, can this drug help me? Is it right for me? Dr. Macaron, if a patient like the one we've been discussing comes to you and says, should I be taking, let's say, acrolizumab? What would you tell her? Well, acrolizumab has been studied in patients with relapsing remitting MS, two randomized clinical trials called OPERA-1 and OPERA-2. And it has also been studied in primary progressive MS in the oratorio trial. But acrolizumab wasn't studied in patients with secondary progressive MS. Is any of that data useful for patients like this one? If one extrapolates for people with primary progressive MS, Ocrelizumab significantly reduced the risk of 24-week confirmed disability progression compared to placebo. The risk of disability progression was 30% with ocrelizumab versus 36% with placebo approximately. So treatment with ocrelizumab in primary progressive MS also improved other outcomes like the time 25 footwalk, T2 lesion volume, and also brain atrophy at 120 weeks compared to placebo. And in this trial, a pre-specified subgroup analysis, they showed that the magnitude of the effect of ocrelizumab was larger in patients who had baseline enhancing lesions and also in younger patients. But older patients without enhancing lesion at baseline also derived some benefit across some of the primary and secondary endpoints. But it does appear that younger patients with radiological activity would be the ones who benefit most from this treatment and would be the most appropriate candidates. Disease-modifying treatments for progressive MS continue to be elusive. Why is that, Dr. Macaron? So I think there are many unmet needs in the field of progressive MS research. So first, trial methodology has many limitations in diseases like progressive MS who that span over several decades. Trials for progressive MS typically do not include non-ambulatory patients. And the benefit of disease-modifying therapies on other functional domains like, you know, hand function or cognition could yield more promising results than when we focus on ambulation. The upper extremity focus trials will further evaluate this patient population by studying hand function rather than focusing on ambulation as a primary endpoint.
And also for phase two studies, measures of whole brain atrophy, for example, are mostly used as primary endpoints, and they have the issue of being somewhat variable and difficult to interpret. So this is a concern for you know interpretability of results. There are other measures like cortical atrophy or MTR magnetization transfer ratio that might be more useful than whole brain atrophy, depending on the population and also depending on the mechanism of action of the investigational product. So effective trials will likely need to span decades, they'll need to be more inclusive of non-ambulatory patients, and they may not be focusing on the most appropriate functional domains. Dr. Fang, what's the current situation? At the time of this podcast, we have two medications that are currently approved for progressive MS. So our experience with anti-inflammatory medications, including ocrelizumab and saponamod, have shown positive but moderate results. We know that these medications, they do work on the inflammatory components of the disease. However, it's not 100% certain of their potential mechanism of action on the neurodegenerative aspects of MS, especially in repair-promoting aspects and the neuroprotective aspects. Our rituximab experience in patients with primary progressive MS have shown that the subgroup of patients who were older and who did not have GAD-enhancing lesions had actually faster disability progression than those who were on placebo. So that indicates that there may be a potential harm of treating these older non-inflammatory patients with a B-cell therapy. Similarly, even though the saponimo trial and the progressive MS have shown positive results, the informed trial involving drugs of similar category, fungalamon, has shown that it did fail to slow disability progression in patients with primary progressive MS. So these two examples, they provide evidence that the therapeutic approach for progressive MS should probably focus on a different pathophysiological aspect of the disease outside of inflammation control. Uh, Dr. Macaron, do you agree? Yes, I think this is the reason why multiple molecules with a potential for neuroprotection have been studied. But unfortunately, the results have been mostly negative or have shown only modest benefits on measures of brain atrophy for which, you know, clinical significance still needs to be better understood or elucidated. So, for example, the MS-SMART trial failed to show a benefit of amyloride, fluoxetine, or ritazone on brain atrophy in progressive MS. The SPRINT MS study results were more promising, but we do need phase three trials to confirm this result before using routinely ibrutilast as a therapy for progressive MS. And lipoic acid and high-dose simvastatin also appear to be potentially beneficial in slowing measures of brain atrophy, but further studies are needed to confirm the results of these phase two trials. And what about the remyelinating therapies? Dr. Feng? So studies of remyelinating therapies have been somewhat disappointing. For example, trials of opicinumab, which is an antilingo antibody that promotes the differentiation of oligodendrocyte precursor cells, and also trials using mesenchymal stem cells to deliver trophic factors to the endogenous stem cells have not shown beneficial effects in either of these trials. The rebuilt trial did show improvement of visual evoke potentials with clomastine, which is a therapy that does have some potential remyelination effects and does open some doors for future therapies involving remyelination. Summarize things for us, if you would please, Dr. Antoneta, about the challenges of developing therapies for progressive MS. So overall, I would say that there's a significant amount of effort that has been put into improving our knowledge first of progressive MS. I think one of the problems previously is that we had a poor understanding of why progressive MS occurred. And as we understand the disease a little bit better, and as we understand the pathophysiology of the disease, I think that will open the door for new therapies. 
I think what we have learned so far is that targeting inflammation in progressive MS does work, but it probably only treats a portion of progressive MS. And I think that what we probably have to do has been touched upon by Dr. Fang and Dr. Macaron is we probably have to affect the disease on several different pathways in order to treat it a little bit more completely. Our advantage is that our future trials will certainly be informed by the lessons we've learned, previous trials. Some of those trials have been negative, but have shown us important aspects, especially regarding the methodology of the trials. And I think that we are going to hopefully get to a point where we can try to slow down progression of the disease. And I think our ultimate goal would be to actually halt progression of the disease in neurodegeneration. And I think that is the next big step in MS therapeutics. Thank you, doctors, for sharing your insights into today's cases. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin, our first learning objective, stratifying patients based on positive and negative predictors as a key part of individualizing MS therapy. Dr. Feng? So this is a very important concept in today's environment in terms of managing patients with MS. MS therapies is no longer a one-drug-fit-all approach, and we should understand that MS therapies should be individualized based on many different factors. For example, demographics, the patient's age or you know family planning preferences, and also disease characteristics such as whether the patient has worse disability or you know more clinical radiologic activity at diagnosis, or whether they're somebody who's been more relatively benign in terms of relapses and disability. Accumulation. And also personal preferences in terms of routes of drug delivery, dosing schedule, and the patient's own risk aversion should be considered as well. And risk stratification for PML risk based on JC virus era status should be really considered. In addition to comorbidities such as heart disease, cancer history, presence of diabetes. So although guidelines that have been published for treatment selection have been developed, but the real-world experience, they do highlight the need to tailor the e-treatment for each individual based on case-to-case scenarios. And our second learning objective, challenges in the development of new MS therapies, particularly for progressive MS. Dr. Macaron? I would say that there are many treatments that are under development for progressive MS. Uh, some of them target remyelination and repair, for example, opicinumab. Others target neuroprotection, for example, ibridilast. And some target the faint inflammatory component that we still see in many cases of progressive MS, like ocodizumab and saponimod. Positive clinical trials today, they mostly demonstrate that the anti-inflammatory disease-modifying therapies have an effect on active progressive MS or on those patients who still have some sort of clinical or radiological activity. And lastly, I think that results from progressive MS trials should be interpreted with caution in the real world, taking into consideration the benefits and the risks and what population was actually derived benefit from these therapies. Many agents are identified through high-throughput screening. They are currently being evaluated for neuroprotection and repair, and specifically in progressive MS, but also in remitting MS to use early on in the disease course. And I think that this is very encouraging for the future. From the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Daniel Antoneda, Dr. Jenny Fang, Dr. Gabriel Macaron, thank you for participating in this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Bob. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. For e-multiple sclerosis review, I'm Bob Busker.
This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. This activity has been developed for the MS care team, including neurologists, nurse practitioners, nurses, physician assistants, and other healthcare providers who care for patients with MS. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive e-multiple sclerosis review via email, please go to our website, www.emsreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the name of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine implies review of the educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Celgene Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.